Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hi, this is Gotti Kaufman, Managing Director and CEO of RCLCO. If you're listening to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCLCO has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. We're here today with uh, Steve LeBlanc, founding partner of CapRidge Partners. Steve is a long-term friend of mine. We've known one another for over 30 years and uh, have worked together in various capacities over the years. My observation of Steve is that in addition to his professional accomplishments, he is one of the most thoughtful strategic thinkers in real estate and perhaps in business altogether. And uh, also a man that has dabbled and successfully accomplished great things in various areas of the real estate industry. Brief background, Steve, with your permission, I know that you started out after getting your degree from University of Texas at Austin as a partner with Lincoln Property Company. Then you transferred to Artstone, where you ended up being a senior managing director of the company. And in the late 90s, you joined Summit Properties, a publicly traded REIT, multifamily REIT, that you were the CEO of until uh, 2005, at which point you went back to Austin and taught at the University of Austin's Business School for a few years and then got tapped to join the Teachers Retirement System of Texas in 2008, uh, where you were Senior Managing Director and you ran the private markets uh, operations for the plan. And we're going to talk about each one of these stations in a moment. But that in 2012, after retiring from Texas Teachers, you started CapRidge Partners, which is a real estate investment uh, private equity firm. A great career, all of which is uh, highlighted by tremendous successes. At the end of our talk, I shouldn't say at the end, but I know we wa- I want to talk to you about your take about the growth in alternative investments for institutional real estate investors and for family offices. I also want to talk to you about the relationships between GPs and LPs, something that you and I have worked together on for the last 10 years or so. And I also, time permitting, would love to chat with you a bit about the impact uh, of the big general partners taking such large market share and really acting kind of like public companies and what does that portend to the future of institutional investing and real estate investing. So there's a lot to talk about, but before we get to that, I think it'll be great to begin sort of at the beginning. And maybe we can start by talking through what got you into real estate, what attracted you to the industry, and what kept you motivated to stick with it for the last uh, 35 years. Well, Gotti, thank you so much for those kind words. I'm humbled by the things you've said, and I've been blessed to be with some great people and, and had some good successes, had some failures along the way too. I've often thought that you learn more from the mistakes and failures than you do from the successes. What got me into real estate? 
I went to the University of Texas, actually originally as a math major in engineering, studying computer science. And this was eons ago, back when you had punch cards, and we had to write Fortran and Cobalt. And I spent a lot of time in the basement with punch cards. And I had a friend who had a ranch out on the Pertinalis River. And I went out there one summer and was just having a great time. And I thought, golly, I'd like to own a ranch on the Pertinalis River. So that was one of the bucket list goals I had. And when I came back to school that after that summer, I switched majors to real estate. And that's how I got in the real estate business. That's amazing. Great. So quickly describe, if you will, your various uh, stations uh, during your career from Lincoln to Archstone to Summit and beyond. Well, Lincoln was a great company. It was, at the time, one of the largest private real estate companies in the country. This was in the early 80s. They were the largest multifamily developer in the country. Mac Pogue was the founding partner. He had been the multifamily partner for Trammell Crow. So I always affectionately say that I, I indirectly worked for, for Mr. Crow by working for Mac at Lincoln. They were a classic private real estate development company. They used mostly other people's money. 90, 95, 98% coming from institutional investors, many of the life companies, Aetna, Met, Aaron Krantz, which became AEW, private wealth capital. And we developed multifamily throughout the country. And it was basically merchant build. You would find a site, zone it, design it, build it, lease it, and sell it. And all of that round tripped in about two to three years and rinse and repeat. It was a great opportunity. I was fortunate to be promoted to partner there at the young age of 26. Then the downturn of 87 happened when Reagan changed the tax laws and real estate in Texas collapsed. It was a great learning opportunity for me because I then moved to Dallas and became the partner for all of Texas and part of the restructure team. At the time, we had approximately a billion two in full recourse personal liability debt that was due. A billion of it was on the commercial side, and about 200 million of it was multifamily. And I spent two years doing workouts, and it's one of the greatest lessons I've had in my career. Uh, the market's bigger than all of us, and as long as you're honest, transparent, and do the right thing, your lenders and partners will work with you as long as you're aligned with them, trying to, uh, you know, basically turn lemons into lemonade. So that was a great opportunity. As you know, the the Lincoln Crow partnership structure was. You would get a small draw, a small salary, and a percentage of the profits. But I wasn't getting a percentage of the savings from the workouts, the reductions of debt. So with Lincoln, I moved up to the Northeast. This would have been 89. So from 89 to 92, I built an office with Marshall Teicher. We developed apartments from Philly to Boston and had great success. In 92, I was recruited by Security Capital Group, Bill Sanders, at the forefront of the REIT modern era. He had taken over what became Archstone and had a plan to develop and start, which we did, Prologis. We also bought Car America, ultimately sold that to Equity Office. We uh, bought a piece of Regency, Hap Stein's company, that shopping centers. So it was a an amazing juggernaut from 92 to 98 as we rode the wave of the REIT modern era. In 98, Security Capital sold to GE, and I was recruited to become the CEO of Summit Properties. Summit was a a great multifamily development company on the East Coast that had gone public in 94, didn't really understand, per se, what it meant to be a public company, and had trouble 
with the dividends, the projections, when to issue equity, not issue equity, et cetera. So it was a turnaround situation. And we were fortunate to have a great team and a great platform. And with some discipline and processes and procedures, we turned, helped turn Summit around from 98 to 05 when we sold the Camden Property Trust. Camden's a great company out of Houston, and this gave them the opportunity to build out uh, their portfolio. Our largest market was Washington, D.C. Second largest market was Southeast Florida, and then Atlanta, uh, Charlotte, and Raleigh. And it really was a great puzzle piece for Camden to build out a world-class portfolio. That was 05, and basically I moved back to Austin to help take care of my mom and my mother-in-law, both of which who were sick at the time. My mother-in-law moved in with us and subsequently passed away about six months later, which was part of God's plan. And we were fortunate to be there with her and have her live with us when she did pass and go to heaven. My mother had a brain tumor that summer. This was the summer of 05. She had melanoma. I'll fast forward to the good news. She's still alive and is doing great. She's a miracle because no one in her protocol at MD Anderson survived, and she has, and this is in Austin, and we see her every week. Now, that took us to 05, and then I was uh, deciding I had graduated from the University of Texas. They had, I got a real estate degree from the University of Texas, and then in the 80s, early 90s, they killed the program, which was greatly disturbing to me. In 2000, a number of real estate executives got together and formed the Real Estate Finance Investment Council at the University of Texas. And when I joined in 05, I came back to teach and I became the senior associate for the real estate program there. And I talked to the dean of the business school at the time and said, I'd like UT to be the number one real estate school in the country. And at the time we didn't even offer a degree. And he said, terrific, raise a lot of money and get a lot of kids hired and we'll help allow you to have a real estate program. So we did that. We raised some money. We got a number of kids hired. We then went from not ranked to ranked 10th to ranked 7th, and I think now we're ranked 5th in the country. We're on a mission by 2021 to be the number one, two, or three. Uh, Wharton's number one, so it'll be hard to knock off Wharton, but I'm confident with that Texas confidence that we always have that, that University of Texas can be the best real estate school in the country. Two things we do that are unique we have a real estate fund that invests in REITs where the MBAs are the portfolio managers and the BBAs are the analysts, and they buy and sell with cash REIT stocks. We've been doing that for 10 years. Recently, we added private real estate to that. We've raised $10 million, and again, the MBAs will be the portfolio managers, the BBAs will be the analysts, and we'll now start this year to invest in private real estate alongside of public real estate. So it's much like TRS or Neisters, Calsters, et cetera, that invest in both private and public real estate. We're, we're establishing a program that will allow university students and MBAs to get the foundation to have a professional career in the real estate industry. And I think that's going to be the cutting edge now that real estate is not only an accepted asset class, but a required asset class in any well-diversified portfolio. While I was at teaching, I was approached by the Teachers Retirement System of Texas to go back to work and run the real estate and private equity portfolio. Uh, TRS is about a $160 billion pension plan for all the public school employees of the state of Texas. Here's an interesting fact. One in five Texans, one in five, 
either are currently working in the public school system or retired from the public school system. That's and even more, more powerful, if you go to just mom, dad, you know, one step removed, brother, sister, it's one in three Texans. So it's a huge part of the uh, economy for every state, especially in the state of Texas. And makes a big difference to help the school, the, you know, the bus driver, the cafeteria worker, the teachers, et cetera. So did that for, for um, a number of years and helped turn that program around. We did $30 billion in, in investments, 126 investments, and we were the number one performing private equity uh, portfolio for any pension plan over $10 billion. And we were in the top decile or quartile every year for real estate. That's amazing. And then once we established five goals when I went to work for TRS, one was build out the portfolio, establish what the portfolio goals are. That's the most important criteria. The second was to put the process and the people in place to execute on that. The third was to get fully invested, or excuse me, the fourth. And then the fifth was to find my replacement, which I was happy to do. Two gentlemen replaced me, Eric Lang and Rich Hall. Eric ran real estate, Rich ran private equity. Subsequent to that, Rich was recruited by Harvard to run their private equity portfolio. And, excuse me, Rich was. Rich was recruited by Harvard to run their private equity portfolio. And Eric was promoted to run both real estate and private equity. Subsequent to that, we were able to recruit Rich to come back to Texas, to Austin, to work for Utemco, the endowment for the University of Texas in Austin. I didn't know it was back. That's great. Yes. I was deciding what to do next. My goal is to live to 100 and God willing and, and, and the creek don't rise and health and, and et cetera. And so I decided I should start another business and I bought half interest of Tom Stacy's company and we converted it to CapRidge. Tom had built a great real estate operating company where he would be the operating partner for major institutional investors and high net worth individuals and family offices. And one challenge I had at TRS was that we would give a big group like a Blackstone or an Apollo, KKR, uh, Carlisle, Walton Street, one, two, $300 million. They would then give that uh, to, to Tom in 10, $20 million chunks. Tom would go do all the work, make all the profits, give it back to the major institutional fund manager who would then take an asset management fee and 20% of the profits for doing really two things, selecting the manager and bookkeeping. And I thought that TRS, we could build the program out where we could go direct, where we could select the real estate to invest in or the operating partner to invest with, and then we could do the bookkeeping ourselves. And so I thought that there was a, and I do believe that the, the future is gonna disintermediate what I call the allocators and the industry is going to move more towards a fully integrated operating companies like the REITs, where you can invest in a REIT stock and for a very small asset management fee, typically about 50 basis points, and typically a small carry, a small profit participation, typically about 10 or 20%, and have liquidity. And so I think the private markets are going to have to move more towards the REIT type structure, and you're going to see some of the allocators be disintermediated, in my view. Now, that may be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now. It may never happen. So we'll, we'll come back to that uh, outlook and the dynamics in the business. So, so how, how does CapRidge not end up in the same conundrum potentially? Well, because we're a fully integrated allocator, I mean, operating company. We're raising capital directly from institutions and high net worth individuals and family offices and investing directly into real estate. So we do our own acquisitions, our own property management, our own asset management, our own construction, 
And we're not going and hiring a third-party operating partner where there is not only another level of fees and promote, but also sometimes can be conflicts of interest where there's not full alignment with all the parties involved. So I believe the platform we've established at CapRidge and a lot of others are doing this the same, and many of the big companies are now doing direct deals too, is the wave of the future. I'll give you an example specifically. I'm still very close to the team at TRS, and I think they're doing a fabulous job over there, even better than when I was part of the team. One of the things they're doing is doing direct real estate. And the last time I talked to Eric and Grant, I believe their portfolio is now up to 40, 45% direct where there's not an allocator in between them and the person buying, fixing, and, and managing and selling the real estate. God didn't make me really disciplined. I've learned to respect it and honor it. There's an old funny saying that says, a vision without execution is nothing but a hallucination. And I may like hallucinating sometimes, but I love execution. So how do I allocate my time and resources? One thing I do is that about every five to 10 years, I try to do a visioning exercise to establish a personal and professional goals. Right now, it would be for five to 10 years from today, and it would be, you know, where do I want to be? What's the day look like? Uh, what have I accomplished? What have I done? And then I come back and develop a two-year tactical plan on what I'm doing that year uh, and the next year to accomplish the five to 10-year goal. And then I just try to keep score and keep record. My natural proclivity is I'm highly curious and I tend to not stay focused. I can get a lot of ideas going and get in and established, et cetera. And I've come to learn that success comes from channeling those ideas and honing those down with great partners who will hold you accountable for what is reasonable, what is executable, what is accomplishable because sometimes you can actually have too many ideas. And one great thing about being a leader is you establish a trust with your people. I love Colin Powell's statement. He said, if your people aren't bringing you their problems, you're not leading them. So I encourage everyone that I work with, that I partner with, to you know, be candid, speak the truth with love is one of the statements we use. And Tell me if I have too many ideas and we need to get back to execution. But I, I appreciate the compliment you've played because uh, I've tried to focus my energy into, into being disciplined and efficient, and it doesn't come naturally to me. So there is hope for those, those, all those people out there like me. I have observed your curiosity and your multiple dimensions of interests, <laughs> but I've also observed you as, an exe- as a CEO of a public company and then again at TRS being quite focused on setting goals, measuring those goals, and executing a plan that will accomplish the objectives and the program, so, and with great results. So I think that you're being a bit unnecessarily humble, but thank you for the humility. Well, I'm just being candid. I I don't know. I've learned from a lot of great people, and, and I do try to keep in mind that when we're in a discussion, there's so many rabbit holes that you can go down, so many inefficient paths, and you just keep coming back and asking your question, well, how is this, what are we doing and how is this helping us achieve the goal that we've set out to achieve? And less is more. Simplicity is so important. Complexity. One of my board members at Summit was one of the smartest guys I ever, I've ever known. And I would lay out a complex, difficult problem and I'd be anxiety over da, 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 da. And Jim would go, okay, I think it's one, two, three. And he would nail it 
on really what the three most important things were in the whole diatribe of the, the thought process I had, usually there's only one, two, or three things that'll drive the majority of every outcome. And if you think there's seven or 17, you haven't focused. It's, it's much harder to, to say more with less than it is to say less with more. I quote Thomas Jefferson all the time. And one of his last letters to John Adams was, I would have written you a much shorter letter if only I had more time. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's very true. Churchill had a similar saying that said that he can, he can always speak uh, for three hours with no preparation at all. But if he has to make, give a 30-minute speech, he needs days and days to prepare exactly. for that. So, same same idea. I I've paraphrased poorly. Let's talk about you as as a person. I know from past interactions that the three most important things to you in life are faith, family, and friends. And uh, I'm curious about how how the intersection of those three things impact your business life and your professional choices. Well, faith, family, friends. My faith journey has been circuitous. I was raised Catholic. I left the church after they kicked my mom out because my dad ran off with his secretary. And Back then, the Catholics excommunicated you if you got a divorce. So that sort of made me angry. My wife of 36 years brought me, helped me come back to the church. We're now Presbyterians. I'm an elder in the church, and I'm also on the board of the Presbyterian Seminary in Austin. There's That's a whole discussion going down the faith path, but I'm humbled by God and by all the others that believe in a greater being and and believe that they're not the center of the universe and that there is something greater to pursue. Family, as I mentioned, I've been married 36 years. I have two wonderful children, my son Andrew, who's married, and one grandson, Arthur, who's now three. My daughter, Aubrey, is in Austin and starting her career. And we have a, a grandson with her, a Labradoodle named Winston. So we're uh, grandparents of a, a nice grandson, yeah, and a grandparents of a, of a new baby or a new puppy. Friends, you know, I don't think there's anything more important. I think you're fortunate in life if you have a half dozen to a dozen very close friends, and you, you, you especially long-term friends, I count you as one, people you can candidly share uh, your journey with and talk to about. I believe that friends and, and work can coincide. I've been friends with just about everybody I've worked with and, and have enjoyed them. Um, even when I've had to be in a senior position when a downturn would happen and, and we've had to have a reduction of force, let people go. The vast majority, in fact, all of them, but, but I can only think of one that it, we're not still good friends and I try to coach and counsel. I think that comes from trust and it comes from having their best interest in mind, uh, trying to go through life, figuring out how you can help other people accomplish their goals. I love the idea of, of helping people do more than they ever thought they could do and just being part of that process. And It's even better if you, if you don't get any credit for it because you can stay more in the background. Another old saying, I've got a lot of isms. Uh, another one is that you know, there's no limit to what you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. Very wise. <laughs> now, now, most of these are not original, Gotti. I'm just I'm uh, shamelessly stealing great ideas from other people. Speaking of family, I know that over your career, you've moved around a lot. I wonder if the way that that kind of played out for you personally, looking back, would you would you have done anything different? Are there any kind of tensions between work and family and, and moving and different roles, different activities that uh, you wish you had made different choices or driven 
your path in a different way? Oh, gosh, who doesn't? I mean, you could go back on your life and uh, you know, a life unexamined. Yeah, would I have made different choices and different things? And yet that's a fool's errand because I do believe that the choices I made, the choices everyone make, again, I'll, I'll quote the Marines, you get 70, 80% of the information, 70, 80% of the analysis and 70, 80% of your gut feel and you go because you lose too many Marines between 70 and 80%, 100% or even 90% because you're never going to get to 100. So would I have done things differently? Was it really hard? We, we moved around a lot, chasing the career, chasing the success. Was it hard on my family? Absolutely. Would they, would I have been better if we had not done that? Who knows? You'll never know that because that's, that's just a, an unanswerable question. Uh, do you think about it? Absolutely. Was it hard on, on my wife and, and our kids? Absolutely. By the same token, there's a lot of benefits that come from that. They're resilient. They can walk into any room, meet anybody, uh, talk to anybody. Uh, change is, is not hard for them as it is for most people. Um, so there's good and bad to everything and every decision we make. Open and some of all of it, it's more good than, than bad. And you'll never know what the past could have been because it'll never be. For sure. But so many people listening to this podcast uh, are still in the stage of their careers where they are making or about to make or in the middle of making the kinds of choices that you had to go through. What are some of the lessons learned that you would share with audience about balancing life, family, friends, and faith with career and with the pursuit of success and uh, and perhaps wealth? Those are great questions. And I actually do a lot of mentoring uh, now with, with younger people, mid-career. You know, I, I split people into early career, mid-career, late career. I'm late career. And I like to share the things I learned in early career and mid-career with other people so uh, they can benefit from the mistakes I've made and the lessons I've learned. The most important thing, I think, is to have a filter process so that you can go through and make decisions based upon some filters that you establish before you have to make the decision. One of the things I would teach at UT was about ethics. And I said to the, all my students, I said, possibly and likely sometime during your career, you're going to be asked to do something that you think is not correct. That's unethical, immoral, or doesn't follow your moral compass. You need to decide now what you're going to do. And remember this conversation now when you're 20 or 22 or 24. And then when you're in that position, you'll have a lot of different pressures, whether it's a financial pressure or family pressure or health pressure. You need to decide now what your filter process is and what your priorities are. The same would be true about your career. Establish a 10-year goal. Establish where you'd like to be. What gives you energy? What's your personal genius? I ask quite often people, what are their personal geniuses? Some people don't know. It's pretty easy to find out what comes easy to you and what's hard. Whatever's easy, just do a lot more of that. Whatever's hard, find a partner to do that because God's made somebody that the stuff that's hard to you is easy for them. So I think a filter process, establishing goals, and then measuring it, going with the two-year tactical plan and trying to measure against achieving that goal. I can give you a concrete example. Uh, we had moved a lot. We'd gone from Lincoln uh, in Austin to Dallas to uh, Connecticut to New Jersey, and the Gulf War hit. We were broke. The company was near bankrupt. Uh, I was nearly bankrupt. Um, and I thought, well, golly, I think I want to figure out a better way to do this. 
And so Ellen and I got together and established a 10-year goal. And then we use that. And about every five to seven years, we reestablish another 10-year goal. And for us, it was faith, family, and friends. And But it can be whatever filters you want it to be. It could be financial. It could be family. It could be whatever the goals, whatever the metrics are. I remember thinking, because we had moved a lot, my perfect ideal 10 years from then, again, I was in my early 30s, was I want to live in a red brick house with a white picket fence, and I want to be a member of a country club with a nice golf course. I want to get up early on Saturday morning when the dew's still wet, play around a golf with my great friends, come back, go to the pool at the country club, have a patty milk with tomatoes and really crisp french fries and a chocolate shake and have my wife and kids there at the pool. That was my vision. Now, did I really want those specific things? No, but what it meant was I wanted stability. I wanted friends. I wanted sort of what leave it to beaver, you know, idyllic type environment would be. And I set off a path to achieve those goals. And luckily we've, we've been able to do it. Going back to uh, how I got into real estate. One of my bucket list goals was to own a ranch on the Pernalis. I'm happy to say I was able to achieve that. My wife and I love movies. And so we would go to movies. Our date night on Sunday was to go to movies. And I walked out of the movie one night, 27, 28, and said, I want to produce a movie someday. Gotti, I had no idea what that meant. I was, you know, completely stupid about it. But I subsequently had the opportunity that God put in front of us, and we've been the executive producers on two movies. So if you vision it, and if you set up a goal, and if you can write it down and create a mental image in your mind and start working towards it, I really think you can accomplish it. I think this is great set of learn uh, lessons. And the point uh, that that kind of, to me, brings it all home is that we all have the opportunity to sit down occasionally, whether it's every three years, five years, 10 years, set long-term goals and then revisit them on time, over time. But also in the intervening period, make sure that we're actually working to those goals. That takes a certain amount of discipline. It also t- takes a certain amount of insight, right, to realize what you can and cannot do and set goals that are realistic that will allow you to, um, you know, actually not end up with a feeling of failure uh, all the time. I like your thoughts about kind of looking for what you're good at and what's easy for you to do and then finding others who are good at doing the things that you are not as good at. And together as a team, as a unit, you can accomplish a whole lot more than trying to force yourself to do the things that simply don't come easy to you and maybe you're not as good at. We call that the unique ability concept that everybody should try to manage their lives so that 80% of their time they're doing things that they're good at and that they enjoy doing. And only 20% of the time be allocated to things that they're either not good at or don't really enjoy doing, but are necessary. Absolutely. And our, unfortunately, our education system thinks you're supposed to get an A in every subject. And that's just silly. That's right. So that, that mosaic, right, of people creates a team or a family or a community that together can deliver and accomplish a lot. So thanks for bringing that to a head. So let's talk a little bit about institutional invest- investments and how that world is changing and what do you portend for changes coming in the future? Well, that's a great question. Let me give you my experience. Uh, I started in real estate in the 80s, and at that time, real estate was, quote, a separate asset class. You had a handful of institutional investors, primarily insurance companies, but mostly high net worth and family offices that invested in real estate. It was highly fragmented. 
and highly cyclical and highly levered. The downturn of the late 80s came when Reagan changed the tax law, and it, it evolved into what's called the remodern era, which I think started in 92 with Kimco and Security Capital, uh, Hearthstone, Prologis, uh, many of the other REITs. So the 90s was the, the decade. So the 80s was the decade of, of highly fragmented individual, lack of knowledge, not much liquidity, and highly volatile. The 90s decade was the, the decade of public companies and the very start of mostly up REITs where you had uh, founders avoiding a big tax liability, maybe more the cowboys, uh, the gunslingers that had built businesses in the 80s. Now they're running public companies, and that's a completely different industry. Many of them prospered. Many of them had succession to more permanent uh, professional management. Then in the 2000s, the REITs entered the indexes. So the S&P, the Russell 2000, et cetera. Once that happened, that created a absolute requirement for institutions to invest in real estate because the vast majority of institutional investors and that for that part, family offices and high net worth track benchmarks and they'll either overweight, at weight or underweight. Remember the 80s, it was a separate asset class. And so you could go from capital to no capital, not you know overweight, at weight or underweight. 2000s, now you have what I'd call permanent capital and the benefit of the discipline and the transparency and the information that the REITs provided because of the SEC and the public reporting. REIT reporting, if you follow the supplementals, is some of the best, most transparent information you can get about investing in any public company uh, in the country. So one of the things I believe is that any investment should be measured by three things. One is transparency. How much information do you have? One is liquidity. How liquid is the investment? And the third is volatility. What's the risk of that investment? And what's happened over the last three decades is that transparency has increased, liquidity has increased because we now have permanent capital, and I'm going to tell you that that volatility has decreased. Now, that we don't know yet because you have to have trailing 10, trailing 20-year numbers to do that. So my belief about the future is for the next decades, you're going to see permanent institutional capital. You're going to see the industry morph in a lot of ways. You'll see permanent professional investment. You'll see a lot more uh, liquidity, a lot more transparency, and in my view, less volatility than we've had in the three previous decades. You'll see us learning new languages. You know, we talk cap rates, the rest of the investment world, the rest of the investment portfolio at PRS or any institutional investment talks multiples. We talk loan to value. They talk debt to EBITDA. We don't even know what an information ratio is in real estate or what the Sharpe ratio is or what the standard deviation. Those are all going to be terms that are used to measure and determine the return for non-real estate investments, public investments. And those are all going to be terms and things that we will see morph into the real estate industry over the next two to three decades. So that's why we're trying to build out the education system at the University of Texas real estate program to train those new professionals, those early and mid-career professionals to grow with the industry as the industry grows. Yeah. I know you also have thoughts about the role of the GPs and how does that change both smaller organizations like yours, not that you're small, but relatively smaller than the Blackstones and the Carlisles and the bigger companies? No, we're very small. Growing, fast growing, but we're very small compared to, to Mr. Schwartzman. Right. 
So how, how do you see that? What does the movie look like in, or what does that look like in five or ten years from today? How will the landscape of uh, general partners is is custodians of capital, fiduciaries for institutional investors? What does that look like? Are there more companies like yours? Are there more companies like Blackstone and Carlyle? How how do you think the world is going to look different in five or ten years from today? You know, possibly, Gotti, there could be more of both. Let me go back to your first question, though, in where the future is. Institute and the relationship between GPs and LPs. LPs, institutional investors, need GPs. An LP buys a stock in a public company. The LP does not want to or have the resources to go run the public company, but it has a selection of public companies it chooses to invest in. It could also hire a manager for a fee to go select the public companies. That's basically what the current private market relationship is. The vast majority of the institutions hire someone, that's a big money manager, a big GP, that then goes and selects the real, uh, the operating partner to invest in local real estate. I think those are going to get uh, disintermediated, much like the, the mutual funds have morphed into exchange-traded funds or low-fee funds. That said, the bigger going to get bigger, and there's always going to be a need for the small local entrepreneur. We're so early in this industry, so nascent, that there is so much growth for both. Real estate is one of, if not, it's probably one of the top three to five asset classes around the globe. If you take public stocks, bonds, uh, other alternatives, et cetera, it's a huge asset class and it's going to grow and you're going to see more and more institutional capital coming into the, the space. So I think there's room for both. I can tell you one mistake or one thing I got wrong coming after the the great recession of, of 08. I thought that you would see less consolidation. I thought usually when you have downturns, you see teams leave big companies, start their own businesses. Uh, if you look at the history of some of the best real estate GPs, their Morphus, their Phoenix came from leaving another company during a downturn. That didn't happen as much. There was a huge consolidation. Uh, the numbers are overwhelming. The top 10 funds have raised uh, the vast majority of the capital, whether it's 60-70% of the capital raised. And the smaller funds have struggled to get going. I didn't think that would occur. So that's been something that I didn't see. That said, I think you'll see those companies get bigger. You, at the beginning of the program, you had talked about the impact of being a public company. These companies, the Blackstones, Carlisle's, KKR, Apollo, et cetera, and I, I didn't name you, not because I didn't think of you, but I just can't name them all. They're all great companies, and being public will help them be better companies. They have permanent capital. They have the discipline of the public markets to hold them accountable. Uh, they have a lot more transparency, and it's all good for the industry. Steve, another change that is coming to the industry is the nature of the capital itself. Much of the pension fund money that's been available for investing in real estate during our careers, yours and mine, has been from defined uh, benefit plans, uh, primarily public employee retirement plans, not only, but primarily. And those are quickly uh, winding down. The, you know, the, the payout of them is not necessarily uh, going to wind down over the next five or 10 years, but the growth in those plans or the switching of those plans from defined benefit to defined contribution plan, which 
has got different rules uh, for managing the capital and investing the capital is a very significant change. I don't know how much thought have you given to how that impacts companies like yours and for that matter, Blackstones and others. How does the GP world, the investor, the operator world adjust to manage that transition? Let me unpack a little bit of that. Uh, Defined benefit versus defined contribution. Corporate defined benefits uh, plans are a thing of the past, and the ones that no one's starting a new corporate defined benefit plan. Corporations are doing defined contribution plans where the individual gets the choice and the individual takes the risk of the market returns. I don't know of many, if any, state and public pension plans that had converted from defined benefit to defined contribution. Some have bifurcated and they're now offering both. But I do think the defined benefit plans, the public plans, are here to stay, and that's a substantial portion of capital, and it's not going away. It's actually growing in the sense that the population of the United States grows, the number of state uh, of public employees grows, et cetera. That will offset any shrinkage or any conversion of defined benefit to defined contribution. Now let's talk about defined contributions, the IRAs, 401ks, SEPs, et cetera. That is such a large, untapped source of capital for the real estate industry. Primarily, it's going to be on the public side because you need to have liquidity. If you're managing a 401k, if I'm Schwab or Fidelity or Vanguard, it's very hard for them to go invest in private real estate because of lack of liquidity because the employee may say, I want my money. I want to cash out of my 401k or IRA right then. You'll see some new bifurcations. You'll see some new plans be built that maybe 5, 10, 15% of the defined contribution plan can go into a, a private investment. Uh, you'll see some private investments offer liquidity. I've often thought, and we, we haven't even talked about the wisdom of, of, of a closed-in fund, but I've often thought about why don't we establish a closed-in fund that offered liquidity VLPs? One of the great things about being the CEO of a public company was when the market thought I was much smarter or the team was much smarter than we really were, you know what we did? We sold them equity. And when they thought we were much dumber than we really were, you know what we did? We bought the equity back. Why don't we do that on a, on a closed-in fund and offer liquidity to the LPs that if the LPs think we're doing a poor job, we'll buy their shares back at a discount. And if they think we're doing more, and that's really what an open-end fund is, we'll issue them more equity. So defined benefits corporate is shrinking. Defined benefits public is flat to slight growth. Defined contribution is a huge untapped market for the real estate industry. We'll need some new products and some new ways to, to attack, uh, attract that capital because it'll have to have more liquidity in a defined contribution plan. So aside from setting up public investment vehicles for public securities or investing in open-end funds, which act like a public company, even though they're not, what else, uh, what other ways are there for general partners that are uh, operators to tap into the defined contribution capital? I don't know. Uh, we are wrestling with that at CapRidge ourselves. My guess is it's going to take scale and it's going to take big companies to, to, to crack that egg. But for us at CapRidge, we have not we have not found the secret sauce to tap into defined contribution plans. I think it's a scale business, both from the regulatory, from the ability to offer liquidity, et cetera. 
Without a question. In order for Capridge to continue to thrive and survive and grow and flourish, what do you have to do? What does it take to win the game for the next five, 10 years? Well, it's have the best people. You know, I, I, one of my isms is who, what, how. And if we can solve the who, which we've got a great team of 50 plus dedicated professionals that are, I think, some of the best in the industry, that's our key to success. Uh, then we need a good strategic thought process. That's the what, where's the opportunity, where's the value, and then how. It's all about execution. But for CapRidge, or really for that matter, for RCL Co., for any company to thrive, it starts with people. Good for you. You're still a young man, but you're not as young as you used to be. What uh, does succession look like in the company? I'm in middle age. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, I said I plan to live to 100. Yeah, you're halfway there, right? So, a little, little more, a little more than halfway there. Right. What is the way that you are working to ensure the evergreenness of uh, Capridge? Well, it's it's critical that we've got the next generation, those mid-career people, and I do. I've got some two great partners, Kevin Black and Stuart Bernstein, that are on the team, and and they are the the future. Uh, Tom Stacy, my partner, will I think continue to work. Uh, for a great long time, I'd like to transition and, and, and allow succession to Kevin and Stuart and then maybe do something else, maybe start another business. I do like this idea of the RIA business, the wealth advisor uh, accessing real estate. Another big untapped source of capital that's just starting to come about is the registered investment advisors after the Great Recession many people got very disenfranchised with the big money managers, the big banks, and managing their capital. And there were some of the best and brightest wealth managers spun out and started their own registered investment advisory. Most, the vast majority of those funds, those, excuse me, those companies do not know and do not have a capability to tap into private real estate. So I think that's another big growth opportunity is to build out a registered investment advisor that whose secret sauce is the ability to offer alternatives, whether it's private equity or real estate or private energy or other alternatives, because most registered investment advisors only invest in stocks and bonds. Uh, they like to have a Morningstar rating on an investment and don't know and don't have the capability to invest in private investments. Right. Very interesting. What advice do you have to a public plan CIO when they're trying to think about how to guide their public plans investment program in real estate? Well, again, I go back to who. He's got to put a great team together. I mean, you could use the five things that we established at, at TRS. One is portfolio allocation. What percentage of the public plan do you want in real estate? And what is the purpose? Is it a differentiator? Is it cash flow? Is it something to mute the volatility of the fund? Establish what role real estate needs to provide to the public plan. I would tell you that it's the ability to invest in overall GDP growth, overall economic health, to have a diversifier that's not correlated to the public markets, at least short term. It's probably highly correlated over three to five years, but not correlated over zero to three years. And to establish those criteria, to put the team in place that you need to do that, build a portfolio out, and then remember that you're in the forever business and don't 
be whipsawed by short-term aberrations in the market. Those are usually our opportunities to make outsized investments. We were very fortunate at TRS to be in a huge growth mode uh, from 09 to 012. So we did a vast, num- a vast majority of investments when a lot of people were sitting on the sidelines and did not have liquidity to invest. So we were the benefits of, of beneficiaries, or I should say that the, the bus drivers and the cafeteria workers and the school teachers were the beneficiaries of that. There's been a lot of debate in American public plans regarding the, quote, the Canadian model, unquote, where more of the investment decisions are uh, internalized and more of the investment operations are internalized and more of the investments are made directly as opposed to, so not using consultants as much, not using uh, operating partners as much, and certainly avoiding most of the allocators and taking equity positions in the enterprises, not just in the real estate assets and how applicable that could, so the debate has been about how applicable the, the applicable that could be for U.S. public pension plans. What's your take on that? How do you advise? What would you suggest for CIOs to consider when they think about that debate, that model, and applicability to their plans? A great question. And the Canadian model has a very short history right now, so we'll see how it plays out. I do think that the public employee model would have to change dramatically. It's stunning to me how many public pension plans manage multiples of billions of dollars with a staff of three, five, seven, ten, and salaries that are not competitive to the private markets. So we were fortunate at TRS to build out a great team. We were fortunate to get compensation raised dramatically. And now we have some of the highest paid public pension plan employees in the country, but still they make a fraction of the amounts that they can make on the private side. The second would be the ability to withstand volatility and public scrutiny, because you're going to have ups and downs in a market. You're going to have high returns, mid returns, low returns. If you're the direct investor, do you have the courage of your convictions? Are you emotionally disciplined as a public plan to stay the course or will you be whipsawed by public scrutiny and public criticism because, you know, the markets had a downturn? So it will be interesting. I think do think the overall concept of disintermediation and more efficient investment is a good one. I would suggest or feel, I don't know, Gotti, this is a, a feeling on my part, I guess, that what you'll see in the U.S. plans is more direct investing into operating partners that become fund managers that are fully integrated, that are also fiduciaries and follow the ILPA principles of transparency, alignment of interest, lack of conflicts, et cetera. But you'll see more public pension plans trying to invest directly in real estate and less capital going to the allocators. I've been wrong for, for the last 10 years because more money has gone to the allocators than the operators. But I still have the, the courage of my convictions. I think this is the best plan and, and where the future will lead us over the next two or three decades in real estate. I don't know that the Canadian plan will work in the U.S. until you see some public plans spin out and those employees are not, they're quasi public employees. They're not held to the scrutiny of a public employee salary caps. 
but they're allowed to make something closer to market returns that they can make in the private sector. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that happens. There's no trend. It's not, it's not happening now, so I don't think it will happen. Boy, that's a great question, Gotti, and I could probably uh, give you five to ten great things they could do. If I had to hone it down to one, it's one that we established at TRS six months into my time there. People were very cautious. When you're working for a state plan, you're a fiduciary for public money. You're held to high standards. You have a lot of scrutiny. Uh, FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, every email, every conversation, everything you do is subject to public disclosure. That creates a certain environment, some of which is not good. So we coined the term at TRS, confident first, cautious second. So that have the confidence, have the courage of your convictions, believe what you're doing is the right thing to do, then measure it for caution, for potential public scrutiny, for potential headline risk, for potential criticism. And I also suggested to the team that if we're ever making a decision and the only reason we're making that decision is that we're scared of being criticized, then we're not being fiduciaries for the beneficiaries. So we need to, as, as, as fiduciaries to those beneficiaries, have confidence in what we're doing. We'll make mistakes, but have confidence that we've done the analysis, we've done the work, and we believe, truly, strongly believe this is the best decision. And if we're criticized for it, be willing to fade the heat of that criticism because we're fiduciaries for these beneficiaries. Otherwise, we're not serving our beneficiaries well. Yep. Good wisdom. A couple of quick questions about the here and the now. We all live in the world of uh, cycles, and some of us believe that cycles are gone forever, but most of us still believe that economic cycles, business cycles, real estate cycles, market cycles are a phenomena that is still going to be a part of a future and uh, one that's hard to predict. How do you drive Capridge's strategy in a world where now 10 years into a recovery cycle with uh, as many optics or lack of optics that you may have about the next downturn? Well, Gotti, that little bit of that secret sauce for Capridge, because we're all in a horse race and we've all got to make, uh, you know, every investment we make is a, a three to five year prediction about the future. And so I'm not sure I want to share our proprietary secret sauce of where we see our competitive advantage. But let me answer that question because I, I hate to pivot and not answer a question directly. What I find mostly when people are asked that question, they say, well, gosh, I don't know. The market's bigger than all of us, which I truly believe. And then they don't want to be held accountable to a prediction they might make. And 12 months later, 18 months later, well, you said this was going to happen and, and it, it either did and you probably get more credit than you deserve or it didn't and you probably get more criticism than you deserve. That said, if you'd hold me accountable, and if we can talk again in 12 to 24 months, my prediction or my personal belief, and again, I'm a partner in a company and we make unanimous decisions on investment committee, and we, we beat things up and debate and argue and speak the truth with love and candor, and, and, but we come to a unanimous decision. I had our investment committee call this morning my personal belief is that we've had an inverted yield curve now that's predicted the majority vast majority of every recession there's greater downside risk and upside risk from here the economy's doing great but if i had to to make a prediction i would say we're probably going to have a recession in the next 12 to 24 months i think if we do 
it'll be mild because there's not that much excess. And I also think the sooner we have it, the better, because as soon as we can get through a recession post Lehman, post the Great Depression, and prove to ourselves, and I'm talking ourselves globally, psychologically, that we're, it's not going to be another Great Recession like the Lehman one, the better. The longer we postpone having a correction or a recession, the more excess it will build up and the greater likelihood there's more volatility. So most guys, most people, most investors are optimists, which I truly am. And yet I'm sitting here thinking that I'm cautiously thinking there might be a downturn in the next 12 to 24 months. That said, I don't know. None of us know. And you just got to execute on your beliefs, have a value proposition, buy buildings that are worth more than you paid for them, fix them up, make them more valuable, lease them up, provide great customer service, and the market will take care of itself. None of us can predict cap rates. None of us can predict interest rates. All we can do is execute and operate. And then the market values will be what the market values will be two to four to five years after you've made an investment. Steve, there's so much we could talk about. We could talk about why to invest now versus sitting on cash, what to be investing in now and where to be investing in a way that's going to be relatively more resilient to the ultimate, perhaps inevitable cycle, Uh, how to further build a resilient portfolio that will last over time, thinking through balance sheet questions uh, and uh, uh, team building. So much to talk about, but we, we have run out of time. So I'd like to uh, invite you to have a follow-up conversation with us maybe 6, 12 months from now when we might have a bit more insight into where we are with the economic cycle and also have a chance for some of these evolutionary things that we have been talking about today to uh, happen and or not and talk about the state of the world at that point. I want to thank you very much for taking the time, Steve, and uh, sharing your perspective with us. It's a fascinating story, and I'm very proud to be your friend. And uh, uh, thank you again for uh, everything that you've done for real estate, for the business, and for society. Oh, you're very generous, Scotty. I think all of those, real estate, the business, society, they've all done more for me than I've done for them. So I'm really blessed. I'm so blessed to have you as a friend. And and uh, I think what you're doing these podcasts is super cool and getting allowing people to share this information. I'm humbled. I'd love to hear everybody do a podcast so I could learn from everybody else that has great ideas. And so thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., Go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at rclco. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.